from the Technology Association of Iowa, welcome to the Iowa Tech Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Waller, with my co-host, Molly Ross. This podcast will provide an exclusive look into technology-focused legislation during the 2022 session at the Iowa State House. We will speak with state lawmakers and Iowa technology leaders from various industries on specific tech legislation, what it means for Iowans, and how it may impact tech companies across the state. The Iowa Tech Policy Podcast is proudly presented by Shazam, a member-owned debit network processor and core provider that believes community-based financial institutions strengthen and improve local communities. Learn more at shazam.net. Additional support is provided by Denton's Davis Brown Law Firm. Hello and welcome to the Iowa Tech Policy Podcast. In this episode, we're sitting down with TAI's legislative liaison, Tim Coonan, who heads up the government relations team at Denton's Davis Brown Law Firm, to take a look back at the 2022 legislative session and its impact on Iowa's technology industry. We'll also take a look ahead of what's to come in coming months. Tim, welcome to the Iowa Tech Policy Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. So this was a busy legislative session. Can you start with just a quick highlight reel of what happened? Absolutely. And, you know, every session kind of takes on its own personality. And if you had there are a couple of top lines from this session, I think you'd have to talk about tax reform just out of the gate. The the governor requested and got early on a tax bill on her desk that she was able to speak about as she was giving the Republican response to the State of the Union address. That was not the end of tax reform. Another couple of bills came through that did quite a bit to change our uh, our tax structure. There are and and really lower taxes to on a lot of Iowans, and so I, I know that uh, leaving session, both chambers and the governor said the work's not done. They want to continue to work on taxes and tax reform as they believe that to be one of the top, if not the top, metrics for companies wanting to locate here and people wanting to stay here after retirement. And so that I think that was their overarching focus. That being said, a lot of progress was made on a lot of different fronts, not necessarily business related, not necessarily technology related. But I will say as as we lead into our next subject, that this was the first session I can remember where a large number of technology related bills were were introduced and particularly with a focus on cybersecurity and and data privacy. And I think that's a great, I know, segue into our next question, but that's also something as an organization we need to be proud of because that's something we came with affirmatively and 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 they they listened. And and I think we're just going to build on that for next year. Well, we appreciate all your efforts on behalf of the technology industry up at the session, this last session. You kind of teased our next question, which there's a lot of technology legislation that was happening. And and we were right in the middle of it, whether that was our public policy committee or you and Sydney representing us. If we could just briefly look at two bills and kind of look at the progress and where they ended up. The first one let's talk about is House File 2461, otherwise known as the ransomware bill. Can you just kind of give an update what happened to that during session and where it ended up? Sure. This is... I'd say this is the first year we fully leveraged and the House IT committee fully found its legs where it was formed two years ago. I think they were searching for what their mission would be. And we spent a lot of time in the summer and the fall before session, maybe helping guide 
Chairman Losey as far as triaging, because that is such a, a huge shoreline. And I think he focused in on what we were thinking about, and that was protecting people online and protecting Iowans online. And that and, and it came in a number of forms. One of the forms was ransomware. We came to the I don't say funny, but but it was a surprising discovery that ransomware and development of ransomware is not illegal in Iowa. You can do that here in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And so we set about putting together a bill that would make it against the law to develop and deploy ransomware. This is such a new concept at the Capitol, not for our industry, not for our experts. But every time you introduce a new concept at the Capitol, it takes a while to get a general understanding of what you're doing and what you're asking for. And so this bill made it out of the House and did not make it out of the Senate. So it, it was when it got to the Senate, I think mid session, there were still a lot of conversations going on around it, but I don't think it was ready for prime time. And I think that that could be said about the other bills we're going to discuss only because, again, not new concepts to us, but certainly new concepts to them. And to their credit, as policymakers, you, you don't want to rush in and you want to make sure you're taking a good holistic approach to these issues because they don't want to have to continue to go back and tweak the code. They want to, they're going to want to try to get it as close to right as possible the first time. Yeah, I know. About a year ago when we sat here, we were talking about public policy development for this session and cybersecurity is one that we wanted to push to the forefront and obviously became a dominant issue. And we once even talked about just like workforce is a common issue year after year. We believe cybersecurity will be that issue moving forward. And I'm, I'm glad that TAI and our experts are at the forefront. Another bill that we were uh, very heavily involved in was House File 2302, which is the Affirmative Defense Bill. What was that? And kind of give us an update where that ended up as well. So taking the other side of cybersecurity and data privacy, you know, it's the companies that have that house the data, right? And that's any kind of company that that you go online and you put your data in and, and then they get hacked. Who's liable for that? What we wanted to do was provide an incentive-based approach for companies to comply with the most up-to-date protocols in protecting data. And if they do do that, and then if they're sued, they're able to use that as a defense in court that, you know, here we did everything we were supposed to do under the law, that should shield us from liability. And so that's not, a, you know, with companies in particular, it's best not to try to penalize you know, as much as possible, but to give them a reason to do the very best by their customers. I will say, though, that by and large, in our experience, companies are already doing that because they know that a breach could be the death knell of their company, that that the market will go away from them. But, you know, this this looked like a, a good foray in the legal side of how, the ramifications of a breach, the ramifications of a data privacy issue. So the other bill that we've spent a lot of time on this session was House File 2506 or the data privacy bill. This brought a lot of attention both from our committee and a lot of work from our committee, but from other business partners, both members and business organizations like ours. This made a lot of progress at the State House, had a lot of conversation. Can you kind of give us a highlight there and also what expectations you might have going forward? 
So this was the most exciting thing we worked on this year. And even though it did not make it, it's a lot like rocket launches, you know, before you get to the moon and you, you know, you're going to, there's going to be some, some tweaks, some misfires. We, we took on a very big issue that has national implications. Iowa had it passed that bill, I think would have only been the, the third or the fourth state in the country to pass comprehensive data privacy language. The first was Virginia, referred to as the Virginia model. And then the second was Utah, and Utah did get it passed, and then they got something called the Utah model. We in Iowa were trying to thread the needle and work with consumer protection groups, with the industry, with big tech, and and any other stakeholder interested. And we had a broad array of companies and interest groups that were really interested in getting this done. Our members were recognized leaders on this issue and continue to be from the legislators, also from other lobbyists. And we were able to take a leadership position to drive that bill. And it, and it came out of the House unanimously and went to the Senate. Now, in the Senate, we've had issues before, as there are certain there are senators who have issues with the big tech and this goes back to the 2020 election. And so this is something where we have to build up again, much like the last bills we talked about. We have to build up a general understanding that what we're doing is not trying to protect our companies. We're trying to protect the consumer. The, the, because go back to TAI's principles. We want to be the premier state for technology. We want to attract a workforce, retain that workforce, grow that workforce. Well, to do that, you have to have you have to have companies that want to locate here. And if we've got good data privacy protections, that's good for the consumer. It's also good for the company. That only helps to serve that goal. Which you know, the overarching. If you hear, I'd say, a word the governor uses more than almost any other word is the word workforce. And and you know, we were we were we were. Slipstreaming right off of that with this issue, but again, talk about a big issue. I mean, this is this is one where we receive national attention. Uh, we'll continue to receive national attention. The, the the stakeholders that were playing in Iowa were being informed by their lobby teams and their public policy teams all over the country. Uh, and so I think, you know, we became a front line on the data privacy issue last year. And I see a lot of interest amongst our members to want to continue that process and a lot of interest amongst policymakers to want to continue that process because we got, I think we got further than a lot of people thought we would. But, you know, this is going to be, we're going to be given a brand new legislature, probably the same leadership teams, but, you know, new legislators and, you know, new set of downs. And so we're going to spend this summer and fall, like we spend every summer and fall, developing our policy package to to present to the legislature, a focus of our process this year will be on making sure we come to the Capitol with a finished product. See, we were building the plane while it was in flight last year. That's a hard way to get legislation done, but it was the only way we could get it done because the only way to flush out the people who cared was to introduce a bill. And then you started seeing people you know, I like this, I don't like this. Well, now I'd say we walked out of there last month. Was it just last month that we walked out of last month with a 95% solution? And so, you know, we're going to spend this summer and fall getting that next 5% locked down and ideally come back in January with a broad coalition of support and a real tailwind to, to start moving this through both chambers. 
Denton's Davis Brown is a law firm committed to helping clients grow, protect, operate, and finance their organizations. With offices in more than 200 locations across 80 countries, Denton supports clients locally, nationally, and globally. More at Denton's.com backslash DDB. You mentioned in regards to data privacy that there are a lot of federal legislative implications. I know we're working shoulder to shoulder with Denton's, Davis Brown, building out our federal public policy initiatives for next year. So as we sit here in June of 2022, we've had, it's an election season, the primaries are over. Can you give TAI members kind of a sneak peek on some of those major races that we should be aware of and kind of what you expect from them? Sure. I think conventional wisdom is clear that particularly given the economy, the, the price of gas, the, the party in charge, whoever is in charge, you know, the music stops, they're the one without a chair. And, and you have a midterm election, just, you know, macro midterm election. Typically, the party in charge loses seats in Congress and in the state houses. And I think that's probably going to play out. Whether that means – I think conventional wisdom puts the House in Republican hands, maybe the Senate, but but that's not a certainty. And so at the federal level, you're looking at probably a, a significant change in in control. At the state level, you're probably looking at no change in control if you look at the polls and if you look at the, the trends in these districts. Our redistricting process always yields primaries because we have a computer draw it. So there's no way for a party in charge to go in and try to avoid pain, right? It just – you hope – that you pick a good map, you know, the by the time you get to a you know, second or third map. And in this case, it created a number of primaries in the House Republican caucus where now there's there are incumbents who beat other incumbents who are now going to be running for office. You have a lot of a lot of retirements on the House Democrat side in Iowa to the point that I think there's just 23 or 24 incumbents, House Democrat incumbents running out of 100 seats. Incumbency matters. Those numbers are hard to overcome. Currently, the House is controlled by the Republicans 60-40. Conventional wisdom has them either holding or picking up seats. And I can tell you that in the 22 years that I've been at the Capitol, 60 is the highest number I've seen either party achieve. And so we're it's a very, at least in the recent past, you know, we might be getting into uncharted waters. On the Senate side, similar dynamics at play. The, there were some high level, there were some retirements of longstanding Democrats. It looks like it's entirely possible there won't be a rural Senate Democrat left or in the House, maybe one or two rural House Democrats. And so you're looking at a rural urban divide. So it comes down to the suburbs. Some recent Supreme Court rulings may put the suburbs back in play a little more than was initially anticipated. But you, it's hard to score $6 gas on a weekly basis against anything you can't touch. And so that, you know, you, you'll watch the Republicans hammer on the economy and the Democrats hammer on maybe the social issues and the things that, that cause moderate, moderate voters to be concerned about the pendulum swinging too far. And so it sets up to be a pretty big race. I think the most the highest profile race we're going to have in the state is between is right here in the third congressional district between Congresswoman Cindy Axney and State Senator Zach Nunn. Zach Nunn won his primary handily and is now one of the top gets for this for the national Republicans. So you have 
Minority Leader McCarthy spending a lot of time thinking about how to get Zach Nunn to beat Cindy Axney because the road to control goes through how it goes through districts like the third congressional district. And so you're going to see a lot of national money uncoordinated national money here on the third congressional district. We are probably going to be one of the top targeted races in this in the country. Both both Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader McCarthy will be trying to get control of the third congressional district. In fact, you've already seen Congresswoman Axney with her first attack ad, which is uncommon in June particularly for an incumbent. It was an interesting angle. I, I don't think I saw that one coming, but but you, but that should tell us how, you know, usually you don't start seeing that till you know, September, October, you know, late August, early September, Labor Day area timeframe. That's, to me, that just, that's, that lays out a lot w- about what we can discover from that. And then the top of the ticket, you know, we have Governor Reynolds, who is, a very popular governor right now has, you know, obviously is getting a national profile. She's raised a pretty impressive amount of money. All the metrics are there. Her opponent, Deirdre Dejir, ran for secretary of state last time, lost, is a sm- small business owner, not a high profile person, picked a lieutenant governor candidate, a county auditor from the eastern side of the state. You know, she's by all accounts, you know, Governor Reynolds is the favored there too. And then Senator Grassley, I think, has an opponent they didn't expect him to have. I think they thought former Congresswoman Finkenauer would have won that primary. Franken beat her pretty handily. And I think Franken is a different animal than than Abby Finkenauer. I think the, the Grassley campaign, while they're still them and are strongly favored to win, have some, you know, some different math to do when it comes to that. And I think so, you know, it's, it's, it's such a volatile year and every election, everyone says, this is the craziest election ever. Well, it's not the election. It's the, it's all the atmospherics there. There's so much, you know, unrest in, and so much up in the air. You also have a situation developing where it's virtually impossible to have a turnout model because Trump kind of destroyed the turnout model. You, 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 no one knew who was going to turn. No one, no one believed who was going to turn out in 16 turned out so that 20, they were modeling off of 16, 20 looked nothing like 16. And so now we're in 22, a midterm, you know, it's, it's, they're going to be scrapping for votes at they, the candidates scrapping for votes everywhere they can find it. And we'll look back, you know, December, January of this, you know, December this year, January next year, and we'll be surprised by who turned out and where. But I do think that, you know, conventional, I agree with conventional wisdom right now that the Republicans will likely be in control of all three parts of the government. And then finally, I'll say that from a trade association perspective, from a business perspective, you know, really, we don't have any stake in who wins, Republicans or Democrats. Really, businesses look for certainty, regulatory certainty, policy certainty. And so the value of, you know, the value of having knowing the same party will be in charge this year over last year is that we'll know who the players are. And that helps. That helps us be able to start working earlier with likely who will be in charge. But if that changes, fortunately, we have an organization that's statewide with friends everywhere. Trade associations cannot afford to lose elections and the good ones never do. And so that's we're positioning ourselves for whatever the outcome might be. So on that note, there's a lot up in the air, a lot of unknowns, but we're we're positioning ourselves and we're fortunate to be in a position that we have a lot of friends across the state, thanks in part in 
large part to you and your team's work. What can our members be doing in the interim leading up to this election to engage with their elected officials or candidates in favor to make sure that we we know we have friends in all places? I'm glad you asked that question. Because there is so much that can be done that does not take very much at all. In an election year in particular, candidates are so receptive to outreach. And I would say that if you own a company, if you have a company in any district, invite the candidates in your area to come and speak to your employees. Have a forum. You could do a Democrat and you could do one or both. You know, you could do a Democrat forum, Republican forum. Show your employees how engaged you are. Show the elected officials or the challengers, whoever, you know, the candidates that you engage your employees and that you care. If you're looking for questions to ask, we'd be happy to put together a script. You probably don't need it. It's all about workforce. It's all about, you know, what makes you what makes you successful, what you think you need to be happen, have happened to be successful and just fly the flag, fly the TAI flag. And and the more localized our efforts can be, the better off we'll be in the Capitol. I, you know, I always say that that Sydney, my partner, Sydney Gangstad and I are only as good as the stories you give us to tell. And and so the more engaged you are locally, the more prepped these legislators are when they get to the Capitol about what you do and then and then more globally what TAI does, that first legislative reception that where we throw a legislative reception, you invite someone you've already met, they're coming. They're gonna come and you're gonna meet them there. And it just it it just works. So that's one thing. I would say engage locally, please. Two, whatever groups you belong to locally, chamber groups, you know, local business, economic development, you know, consortiums. Engage there, too, and get those local groups to start thinking about our issues as their issues, because the, the more voices we have on our issue, the, the stronger we are. And I believe that given the fact that you know we have this growing tech industry in Iowa and we are what you want in your community, these are high paying jobs. These are these are these are people who are putting down roots and, and doing things that bring college graduates back home. They bring tech people back home. Get them to embrace our issues and and then they will help us at the Capitol as we continue to push our message. And then finally, and I know it sounds funny, just vote, be a voter, you know, and and encourage voting amongst your employees because the candidates are looking for voters. And if they believe that you're an engaged company, an engaged person. And when they come speak to you, they're speaking to potential voters. They're going to take that a lot more seriously. And, you know, that's, you obviously can't make anyone do anything, but there is nothing wrong with even having a a morning where you send everyone out to go vote or, you know, just say you have two hours. I'd like for you to use that for this, but if you don't, that's not, you know, like let, you know, let's, let's encourage that. And then after the election, whoever wins, ideally, if you've developed somewhat of a relationship with both, you reach out to the person who won and lost, thank them for running. But you you reach out to the person who won and said, hey, remember us from the campaign? Love to talk to you about what we will now have as our legislative agenda. And then you will have one of our cards in your hand and you will be able to close the loop and send them off to the, the Capitol in January, well armed with our messages and understanding that they're not just listening to TAI, but they're listening to their constituents back home. That's my dream. Well, I appreciate that. And one thing that you've kind of instilled in us is make sure you have relationships with your state legislators because they potentially become part of your federal delegation like Senator Nunn potentially could be. And I appreciate that. If Senator Nunn wins 
every single one of our federal delegation will have been a former state house or state senate member. All the more reason to stay connected. Yeah. Last question. Politics is something not everyone is engaged in. It's your profession, obviously. You said you've been at the state house for 22 years. So 22 years ago to now, what has changed in the tenor up at the state capitol? If you were to talk to yourself 22 years ago, how would you describe what the future looks like in the state of Iowa when it comes to politics and the legislative process? Sure. You know, I think I think what has changed, honestly, is the technology that has changed the conversation. It used to be you couldn't blast email. You couldn't you know, you, you had the shoe leather. You needed to engage your legislator. You literally either needed to see them at a forum, a coffee shop back home, or you had to come to the Capitol or write a postcard, right? And that was that was the communications process. And now there are so many different ways. You know, you can, you can do all kinds of things on social media. You can indirectly communicate. You can directly communicate. So that has changed. I think the general idea, I think we've been led to believe that our elected officials are are less receptive to people than they have in the past. And I and I disagree with that. Most every bill that passes the chamber passes with overwhelming majorities. There are a few issues that divide the parties and then divide the caucuses, not by party, but inside of the caucus. So I think that what has changed is this is the perception that it's harder to get stuff done at the Capitol. And in some ways that might be true, but the same things that were effective 22 years ago are effective now. And it's the things we've been talking about. It's in Iowa in particular, our access to our legislators is, is I'd say unparalleled. I mean, it is a, it is truly a group of people who listen to their constituents. I've seen time and again, grassroots movements defeat large, well-organized corporate initiatives. I've seen, you know, I've, I've seen that happen over and over again. I think it's more challenging now to build that because of tech. I think technology has almost made people a little lazier about showing up because at the end of the day, the best, the best is the in-person at the coffee shop. My name is Brian Waller. I vote. I voted for you. I have a question. Where do you stand on this? That person that legislator, still a human being, internalizes all of that and then comes to the Capitol. And so I would say that that what has changed is the technology and the delivery systems. What hasn't changed is what still works in advocacy. All right. Yes or no question. Last one. Will Iowa retain the caucuses? Yes or no? Yes, Republican. You can throw a maybe in there if you want. Can I do a maybe in there? You can do a maybe. I'll give you one maybe. So I only I only hesitate as one of my law partners is is the one of our DNC members, and he's actively trying to get <laughs> the caucuses to stay in Iowa. People are are negative on that right now. I I don't. If we do have the caucuses, it won't look the same. I would say that if if the caucuses are here, we'll have had to the Democratic Party will have had to dramatically overhaul how they run the caucuses because frankly, the Democratic Party really likes primaries and not caucuses. They just that's just the the way of the world. Well, you're going to hear us talk a lot about in the future that we want to be the number one state for technology in the Midwest. And we know to get there, public policy and how we stand in our legislative process and some of our initiatives have a lot to do with that. And so on behalf of my co-host, Molly Ross and I, we appreciate you and your team and all that you do to help build and unite the Iowa technology industry. And Tim Coonan, thank you for joining us on the Iowa Tech Policy Podcast. Thank you very much. Anytime, Brian. 
That wraps up this episode of the Iowa Tech Policy Podcast. Thank you to Shazam and Denton's Davis Brown Law Firm for supporting this initiative. At TAI, we believe every Iowa company is a technology company. Join us at technologyiowa.org to build and unite Iowa's technology community.